I'm Teresa. I'm an alcoholic. Teresa. Oh, okay. Um, I am very nervous. Um, so I thought I would just throw that out there to begin with. You know, I'm not. Um, you know, 45 minutes is a daunting amount of time to try to get in front of a group of strangers and tell your truth. So I figured I would just tell that right away. I had a conversation with a sponsee this morning and I was telling her that, you know, being, it's not easy for me to open up to people. And this is a sponsee that I've had for four years. And she said, oh my God, thank you so much for telling me that. And I was like, why? And she's like, cause you know, I just didn't know if you didn't like me very much, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I just feel like you don't share that much with me. And I was like, so I feel like this is probably exactly what I need to be doing today and that is you know the divine way that this program works so um you know first of all I wanted to congratulate our birthday people congratulations on one in three years I got filled up thank you for sharing with us and Michelle you're awesome thank you for being my 10 minutes um, I was taught always to start any lead with three fundamentals that I was told if you have these three things, you have a good foundation and it's not everything, but you know, what's your sobriety date? And mine is 8-13-04. And who is your sponsor? My sponsor is Deanna from San Juan Capistrano and, you know, to have a home group, which right now, technically, I, I'll be totally honest, I'm a little bit in flux. My home group was online, but it went dark. We were doing Saturdays, so I'm starting to find a new home group. But um, those were the three things I was told to have from the get-go always, and to be making sure that you are accountable and showing up for those commitments each week. So, all right, experience, strength, and hope. I guess here we go, right? Um, I am born and raised here in Orange County. Uh, my mom started coming to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1984 uh, when I was three, I'll age myself. Um, so I technically grew up around Alcoholics Anonymous, and my mom has been very, very active in AA for a very long time, and that was, it, it's an interesting part of my story, and that's the reason why I start with it. Um, I have alcoholism on both sides of my family. My father passed away from liver failure in 2014. Um, he did not get it and he is no longer with us. My mom is still around AA and she is. It's a pretty stark reminder for me of what my options are. I either stay here and live or I go out and die. And that's how I look at Alcoholics Anonymous and that's how I look at alcoholism. Um, I, I think that this is a life and death disease. I treat it that way. Um, and you know, I know that that's not like a, a bubbly way of starting my share. I'll tell lots of bubbly stories too, but I think it's important to start off by saying that like Alcoholics Anonymous is hands down the most important thing in my life. And I may not always act like it because I'm not a cheerleader type, but Alcoholics Anonymous has given me every single good thing that I have in my life today. And my life is really, really good. And um, it all started here basically. So 
you know, I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous, basically. Um, my mom didn't stay sober the entire time. So I did as a child go through uh, witnessing a parent relapse. Um, I went to Betty Ford when I was 11 and went through their family program. Um, my mom used to host meetings at my house. Uh, I, I went to international conventions when I was a teenager. I, I literally grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's almost like I was deaf to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I did not take it in. Um, I always thought that that was something that um, was somebody else's issue. And it didn't, you know, it, it talks about it in the big book or in our literature that, you know, knowledge is not going to prevent you from being, from suffering from alcoholism. And um, I was from the get-go exhibiting signs of being an alcoholic. And, you know, my, my, my family, my stepdaughter, there's a story about her eating sugar out, you know, as a three-year-old in the rain. We hear that story sometimes. And I have a very similar story where, you know, my mom says that at three years old, she caught me drinking cough syrup. Um, <laughs> no idea why I was doing that, but she said I was wearing a little white nightgown, had crawled up onto the counter, found the cough syrup and was drinking it. And, I, you know, and that kind of is like the story of how I'm hardwired. And I, you know, like I said, I have alcoholic, I have alcoholism on both sides. And, um, you know, from a young age, my behavior pattern was always, if I wasn't allowed to have sugar, I was finding sugar and hiding sugar. If I wasn't supposed to be doing, you know, some activity, I was doing that activity and keeping it a secret. And um, I was an isolator. I was a, a very uncomfortable, shy, nervous kid. I was picked on a ton when I was growing up. Um, I suffered, now I know I suffered from, you know, pretty bad anxiety and depression. And um, so, it was painful growing up in, in my, in my skin, um, you know, up until I got to about high school. Coincidentally, my first drink, I was about 13 years old. Um, I got, my girlfriend got a bottle of Kahlua. I think it was a fifth of Kahlua. She stole it from her parents. We took the bus down to Newport. We, um, I think we went some, to the liquor store, bought milk. I have no idea how at that age I knew you were supposed to put milk with Kahlua, but we did. And we drank the whole thing, the whole <laughs> bottle between the two of us. And somehow we made it home. Um, this, you know, and I distinctly remember I was going up the stairs at my mom's house and she saw me from down the hallway and came in and administered a <laughs> sniff kiss, which, um, you know, if you're an alcoholic, I'm sure you've had somebody give you a sniff kiss before, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and those started for me at 13 and that was my first drink. Um, when I went to high school, I went to, I started getting into trouble around that age. So that was, I think, eighth grade. Um, my mom decided to put me into an all girls Catholic school to try to keep me from getting into trouble. And I immediately sought out the kids that were getting into trouble. And the school was in Anaheim and I grew up here in Newport, I'm not here, but I grew up in Newport. And I knew that based on the way that things were in my home, that if everything was good on the outside, that I would pretty much be able to do whatever I wanted. Um, and I started living what it talks about in our literature, the dual, like that dual life. And I got pretty good at keeping things looking a certain way on the outside when in reality there was other things going on, um, you know, inside and behind closed doors. Uh, I started partying my freshman year in high school and it was 
you know, I found the kids whose parents had lots of alcohol. Um, my best friend in, in high school, her dad was a, an alcoholic. She also is now sober many, many years, I flash forward. Um, but, you know, we would sneak out in the middle as, and I'm mortified now because I have children, but, you know, my freshman year of high school, we're sneaking out in the middle of the night and going to meet up with strange men and drinking at their houses and um, walking around, you know, little Linda of Anaheim, or I don't know where I was. Um, and, you know, nobody really asked any questions in my home because I was getting straight A's and I was playing sports and I was on being, you know, honor roll this, whatever that. So everything looked okay. And if I wanted to stay at somebody's house, then nobody had to pick me up from school and it all seemed to work out fine. Um, you know, it got to the point where I just drank anytime I had the chance. I was young. Um, at least in my generation, it wasn't as easy to get fake IDs. Apparently now it's like super easy to do that, but um, it, they also weren't as hard. It wasn't as hard to get alcohol for some reason, I don't think. Um, but, you know, I would drink before sporting events. I would drink before, I mean, where I was playing in the sporting event, not just <laughs> attending the sporting event. Like I remember taking tequila shots before soccer games. Um, I remember, um, you know, and, and that was, I mean, that was, you know, 15, 16 years old. Um, I was the type of alcoholic. I am the type of alcoholic, let me rephrase that, where um, if you add alcohol to me, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I had, I have sometimes a difficult time relating to people when they talk about their alcoholism, because um, from the beginning with alcohol, I think I had already crossed over that imaginary line. Um, I was the type of drinker that if I started, I wanted to drink more. I could stop. I, I don't think I got to the point, I was certainly not in high school. I wasn't at the point where, um, you know, I had developed any type of need to continue drinking, but I was blacking out by at 14. I blacked out almost every time that I drank. Um, I don't remember ever having a hangover. Um, I would drink when I woke up in the morning. Uh, there are numerous stories where I would be somewhere, um, drink, and, you know, I, I distinctly remember one time I was with a group of my friends, everybody was drinking and um, I came to being hosed <clears throat> off on somebody's front porch. Um, I had obviously blacked out and caused some kind of scene. Um, I am a very histrionic, dramatic alcoholic sometimes. Sometimes I am a sobbing, hysterical alcoholic. Sometimes I am an aggressive, violent alcoholic. Um, I am very rarely a happy, bubbly, party <laughs> alcoholic. I am a straight, crazy alcoholic. Um, and I realized that pretty early on. Um, and I, because I am like zero to 150, more, more, more. And I don't know if that's like the genetics component or if that's just my personality type, but um, that's pretty much what it was like when I was in high school. And by the end of high school, I had started experimenting with drugs um, in addition to drinking. 
And uh, I mean, I got through college, or I mean, I got through high school doing fairly well uh, because of that whole need to keep up appearances. I got accepted to college. Um, I did most of that on my own. I developed a tendency to be very independent because I didn't like people looking too close or getting mm -hmm. too close, my family or you know any authority figures really. Um, and so I went to college and I decided to go to college here in Orange County. I went to Chapman. And the great thing about going to Chapman is that Mexico is really close. And, uh, and that was in like 2000 and it was before Mexico was super sketchy, which it is now. And I don't advise going there um, ever. But in my time, it was, you know, you could go down to Mexico and go to Rosarito or go to Ensenada or go to TJ or go to wherever and be 18 and it was cool. And so, you know, my freshman year of college, it was, you know, we would go sometimes twice a week. Um, and then it was also raving was big back then too. I think it is still, but I'm old, so I don't know. Um, and I've been sober a long time, but so, you know, I was doing a lot of that. So I'd do that a couple of nights a week, go to Mexico a couple of nights a week, um, go to frat parties a couple of nights a week. And, uh, that is, you know, how college started for me. Um, but I have always been able, at least at the beginning, I was able to maintain my academics because I wanted to have a level of that autonomy. I didn't want people telling me what to do or what I could and couldn't do. Um, my first couple of months into college, I got in trouble for having um, alcohol on campus. I got written up, they threatened to kick me out. Um, I, I had to go to a disciplinary board um, and deal with the fallout from that. Um, I think there might've been a second incident like that, but I managed to, you know, I generally managed to scrape by, but what started happening is that as alcohol started to get more and more unmanageable, my use of outside issues started to increase um, because I found that I was much, the, the, my behavior was a lot more predictable on, you know, if I was doing drugs than when I was drinking. Now, I always, I always drank too. Um, I, I am a vodka drinker um, and I like to drink vodka all the time, pretty much. So I would just drink vodka um, and I didn't need anything else really. That was what I drank. And when I got to, you know, as I was going through college, um, I would cycle through substances because I would start having consequences. Um, I always drank and I always, um, you know, but I would hang out with certain people and then I would have um, some medical issue or I'd get in trouble with school or I'd have some problem with a job or, or whatever. And I would be like, it's that substance, it's those people, it's that situation, it's not me. Um, and I would change that chapter and I'd move on to the next one. And then I would start hanging out. I, I, I adopted that, whatever the next culture was and, you know, whatever the next drug was. And I went through all of it. You know, I went through the, um, you know, the party phase and the pill phase. And I went through the hallucinogenic phase. And I went through all of that stuff, having consequence after consequence. Alcohol was a consistent thing for me. But like I said, 
without other things, I, it was very unpredictable what would happen. I love to drive drunk. Um, I also am um, somebody who, you know, I, like I said, I black out and I started to have situations where my intentions did not meet my actions. And one of the things, one of the stories that I tell um, that is something that I regret is in, where I look back on my alcohol use. And I, this was right around the time I was probably 20 years old. And this is the time period where I know that I started to lose like the ability of having choices. Um, I was in, I was actually in Europe with my family and my brother was 10 at the time. Um, and I had decided that I was gonna drink champagne because you know, why not? I'm in Paris. So um, I was gonna drink champagne and I ended up drinking two bottles of champagne and then taking my brother out on the town and I completely blacked out um, in a foreign country and my brother's 10. And I have no idea to this day how he got us back to where we were staying. Um, all I know is that when I got back to the hotel, I was sobbing hysterically and ended up throwing up all over my mom and the entire place. So um, yeah, that is the type of alcoholic I am. It's not cute. And uh, I don't have a lot of like fun stories with drinking because that's generally what it looks like. So once I got towards the end of college, like I started to lose control over the substances and that started to get weirder and weirder. And I started to, um, you know, I couldn't, I, I was at the point where, you know, things had gotten pretty extreme. I, um, I started smoking meth basically, because that was like, that seemed like a good idea at the time. And um, it was, that was in 2003. And, you know, that first semester, I got straight A's, you know, I was able to, it seemed like it was working for me. And then things took a turn for the worse. And what um, rapidly started happening is that I, you know, lost jobs. I lost relationships with my family. Um, you know, I found myself in very strange places with strange people. And, you know, I was 22 years old at the time. And in my mind, I thought that the life that I was living was completely normal. And I thought that everyone was living the life that I was living. The delusion that I told myself was that, um, you know, this was how I was going to live my life forever and that it was completely okay. Um, I had gotten all the way to the end of college. Basically, I had one, I had my thesis that I had to write and I had, um, and I could not get it together at that point. I had completely lost control of when I was supposed to be awake, when I was supposed to be asleep, like the whole thing. And I'm not, I, I mean, everyone in this room, I'm sure understands like when you tip over that point where you lose control. And, um, I ended up just pretty much giving up in one sense. And in the other sense, I, everywhere that I went, I took a box, I took, uh, I can't believe I'm sharing this right now, but I took a legal box of my research for my senior thesis with me in my car. And I drove it around everywhere that I was going because I was planning on finishing my paper. And I ended up with a group of people in Northern California, um, I don't know what city I was in. I don't know half the people that I was with. 
I don't know what I was doing there really, except for that um, those are the people that I was hanging out with at the time. And they, sorry, we're just checking the time right here. Right on time. Um, I, at that point in time, I had lost my, like I said, I had lost all the relationships with my family and my friends and jobs. I was homeless. Um, and I was with this group of people that I have no idea why I was there. And I don't know, I don't know what city I was in. Um, and I have no idea why I decided, I didn't decide, let me put it this way. For some, I had gotten to the point where I was extremely sick. Um, at, at that point in time, I had um, gotten, I had gotten arrested. This was the summer of 2004. I got arrested and let out of jail. Um, I had gotten very, very physically ill from malnutrition and other things. Um, I ended up up in Northern California and we didn't like, I didn't know who I was, what I was doing there or whatever. And for some reason, um, I had a moment of clarity, which didn't make any sense at that point in time. Um, my my moment of clarity was basically that it didn't match. Like the, the ideas that I had about my life and what, how I was actually living didn't match. So I ended up calling my mom, like many good alcoholics do. And for some reason, somebody agreed to drive me. It was about 10 hours south. Um, from wherever I was with the people that I was with and um, somebody decided to drive me home and I, I remember I was driving home and even in that state of mind I remember calling my mom and saying you know can I come home tomorrow instead of today <laughs> and she was like no and you need to come home tonight or you can't come home at all and at that point in time, I hadn't been talking to family or friends or anybody for a long time. And I have no idea why that time she answered the phone or why that time she said, okay, that I could come home um, or that I was willing, except for that, I, I guess it was the right time. And that was um, August 12th of 2004. And I ended up um, in my house, in the bedroom that I grew up in. And um, I started a detox, I guess you could say at home. And my mom came in the next morning and basically threw some clothes on the bed and said, get up, we're going to the 6am meeting at the Newport club. I had no idea what I was in for at that point in time. When I showed up at my mom's house, you know, now as a parent, I think to myself, like what, like what it would feel like to be her. Um, because when I showed up, I had a trash bag and that was all my possessions. Um, I had, uh, I was wearing uh, terry cloth booty shorts and um, like rocket dogs. And I had um, like basically scabs like all over my body. Um, and I was very, very pale and like malnutrition. And like I had said, I had been in the hospital and I had been in jail and I was very, very sick. And uh, probably didn't make a lot of sense at that point in time. And this is somebody who like, you know, go back in time, not that far before that had had aspirations of 
you know, going to law school and, you know, accomplishing things and had been successful in school and had lots of plans. So much so that I had, while I was in college, like I had, you know, studied for the LSAT. I had um, put out applications for law school. I had been accepted to law school, but, you know, in my circumstances, I had, I was homeless and I was on drugs and I couldn't stop drinking and I was arrested. Like that person doesn't go to law school. Um, and when I came home, uh, I had to basically face all of the wreckage that I had created. And that wreckage was a lot. There was a lot of wreckage with legal issues and health issues and um, trying to put everything back together. And I was only 22 years old. And um, I did not intend to get sober. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes I hear in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and I've read, you know, and I know that it's important for people to make a decision that they wanna get sober, but that's not my story. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous saying, I'm gonna get sober and my plan is to stay here. I basically didn't have a better idea. I, I just was in a really bad situation. I had no other options. And the option that was in front of me was better than the option that I was leaving. So I said, okay, you know, and the, the terms of my, um, you know, living arrangement was I had to go to a meeting every day and I could sleep as much as I wanted and I could eat whatever I wanted, um, but I had to find my own rides. And that was, that was, oh, and I had to hand over my cell phone. I couldn't have a cell phone and I didn't care, you know, cause at that point in time, I had been homeless for a couple of months and my, you know, I didn't, I mean, I had spent time trying to figure out where to shower and I had dealt with the types of things that female alcoholics deal with when you are homeless and you don't have other options. Um, and so, you know, having a place to stay was good enough for me. And the requirement of going to AA meetings was like, I can do that, no problem. Um, and, you know, within my first 30 days, I was still making plans to go back out there because that's what I wanted to do. And I don't know what happened, except for that the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous hit me when I, when I got here. You know, I started hearing people talk about their experience, strength and hope. And I started thinking that maybe it would work for me too. And, um, Luckily, because of my family ties, people started swarming in and taking me to meetings. Um, my mom had helped a lot of people locally in, in AA. And for whatever reason, I guess for that reason, people took it upon themselves to help me. And so people started taking me to meetings. And, um, you know, I, I was like really weird. I am weird anyway, but I was really, really weird when I got sober. Um, I, I would like sit around and like color coordinate pens and like, you know, like go like shuffle off into the corner. And I mean, I remember like looking at the 12 and 12 and like, I could only focus on like two pages at a time. Like my brain was just scrambled and I, I didn't think that I was going to be able to, you know, do what other people were doing. And I was crawling out of my skin. And I was sitting in the Newport club with all these like pretty people. And I looked like hell. I mean, I looked like I belonged on the streets. At the time. Uh, I did not feel like I belonged in that world. Um, but, you know, I just kept showing up. And the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is that when people swoop in for you and around you, um, and, and at least for me, I had been beaten into such a state of reasonableness I, I just, you know, at some point I kind of, I gave up and at the 30 day mark, 
I asked if I could stay another 30 days because I figured, you know, I could always go back out there. I didn't know what this type of life would lead to, but I knew what my life looked like before. So, um, you know, with some help, I ended up getting my legal stuff cleaned up. Um, I ended up calling the law school and they said, you know, we don't want people like you in our institution. And that was, a, that was a drag. I was pretty bummed out about that. But, you know, I was told to get a job, get a foundation, go to lots of AA, keep your head down and clean up the wreckage. And that's what I did. You know, I got a sponsor and I, I got a job at a juice bar and I worked and I cleaned the, you know, in those days, like you actually had cigarette butt commitments and like, you know, clean the ashtrays. And, and I went to meetings probably, I probably went to eight, eight, eight nine, 10 meetings a week when I was new um, and worked and stayed super busy. And I got a sponsor that started me on the steps right away. And I didn't know any better. So I just did what I was asked uh, to do. And I, she took me through the steps pretty quick. I think I got through them in the first six months or so. And I was not a pink cloud person. Um, I was pretty much like black hoodie sitting in the back, pissed about being sober for a while. Um, and cause it was, I mean, I was crawling out of my skin and I didn't, you know, I have a lot of demons in my mind all the time. I still, I still do, you know, my mind is very, very, very loud. Um, and you know, as a newcomer, it was worse and I didn't feel like I belonged here, but you know, I was pretty desperate because my bottom sucked and I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go back to that. Um, you know, and I was facing going to jail and I didn't want to do that. And after, you know, having been able to sleep in a house again, I kind of liked doing that. So I just kept doing the things that were asked of me about halfway through the year. Uh, I had cleaned up enough wreckage that I ended up getting back in contact with the law school. And, um, I had, I asked them if I could go and start the next year and they ended up saying yes. I don't know why, but they did. And um, they ended up accepting me. So uh, a few days after my one year birthday, I ended up starting law school, which was crazy. And I have no idea how I made it through that at that point in my sobriety. But um, I was very busy in AA. I had lots of sponsees. I still went to a bunch of meetings and I, was going to, you know, I leaned on the women in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when I didn't believe in myself, I had a team of people that told me that I could do it no matter what. And that was really the message that the women in Alcoholics Anonymous gave me. They, you know, when I couldn't believe in myself, they told me that I could do it. Um, you know, as time went on, uh, I ended up continuing to go through law school. My first year of law school was brutal. Uh, I had a lot of catching up to do in terms of my mind, but I ended up catching up and, you know, I, I did what other, what they taught me in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I, I showed up early. I made connections with the teachers. I stayed late. I got commitments. You know, I did all those things that Alcoholics Anonymous teaches you. And that was successful in that arena. I started to learn that the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous can be applied in other places. And when I do that, um, I can have pretty good outcomes there too. Um, one of the things that I was taught early on that I, that I felt was pretty important was that um, 
you know, no matter what, for me, I always have to have a sponsor that I'm completely transparent with. And the reason why it's important for somebody like me to have that is because I have difficulty being totally transparent with people, like on a group level. I don't like to share a lot. Um, I don't really open up to a lot of people. So it's very, very important for me to have a sponsor that I talk to regularly. And I always have had that over all the years. I've always had somebody that I'm working with and I'm almost, you know, always working steps and trying to move through um, doing one thing after another in AA. I ended up graduating from law school with honors. Um, I ended up, you know, being successful in that arena, despite like my mind and um, what I told myself. And, you know, from there, life pretty much took off. You know, I, the thing about life and growing up in AA or life and coming into AA is that, you know, once that initial chapter of um, getting the foundation and learning the basics, life, it, it continues to happen. So as I, um, you know, as I progressed through my life, uh, there were lots of chapters for me. Um, I reinvented myself here a lot of times and I had a lot of different types of bottoms. Um, you know, I, I went through, I, I think anybody, any person that you talk to that's been around Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time will tell you that they've had uh, a lot of experiences here that have been hard for them. Uh, for me, the application of the principles of AA have always been enough to get me through. Um, you know, I was, all right, I'm just trying to make sure I don't overshare. It's rare that I would overshare anyway, but, um, and I, I still have time. Okay, so my experience after I got sober was, um, you know, I really had no idea who I was when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I was very, very young and I had started drinking and using very, very young, um, even younger, obviously. And I was very busy when I got to AA. I started school right away and I started a very, um, you know, law school is not easy. It's very time consuming. Once I got out of law school, then I was working a lot. And I really didn't have a lot of time to figure out who I was. And I just made decisions based off of what seemed appropriate. You know, I, I ended up getting married. Um, I had a kid and that whole chapter of my life was not a match for me. And it was a, an experience that I'm grateful that I went through, but you know, looking back now, I realize how that all happened and it, I had to learn it by going through it. Um, I think that a lot of times it's pretty, it's easy for me to take a look at what other people have done or how other people live their lives and compare myself to other people and think that I'm not doing it right. And uh, I've had people tell me over and over again that you can't compare your insides to somebody else's outsides because people, especially in today's world with social media and everything else, people are always going to present the best parts of themselves to the outside world. And everyone is going through something usually. You know, once um, my first marriage and divorce 
was an interesting chapter in my life. And I, I'm, you know, like I said, I had my daughter through that experience and I'm, I'm really grateful for it. But then once, once I got out of that relationship, I ended up getting into another relationship and, um, that chapter was pretty dark for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I had already felt pretty bad and like a failure from my, my marriage not working. And then I ended up getting into a situation where I was in a relationship with somebody that, um, well, I'll just say that it wasn't, it was not a good match for me, another not good match for me. And the thing that I can say about that is that I went from my marriage right into that second relationship without giving myself any time. Um, and the problem with that situation, and again, I think it comes back to being transparent, being willing to be transparent, is that um, when that situation started getting really bad, I didn't really talk about it that much. You know, I didn't tell people about it. And then um, when it got really, really bad, uh, people didn't know. And it was a situation in which that person was another member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they had a different version of things that was going on. And um, that they went to my home group. Um, they told their version of things to everyone around the home that, you know, where we went to meetings. And um, it made me feel very alienated. Mm -hmm. And I was in a very, very dark place. But you know, even from that situation, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, good things came out of that very, very dark and scary time for me. Um, I ended up meeting my husband um, through that chapter. And, um, you know, he is here and he's awesome. <laughs> and uh, he spoke here last week. And, uh, you know, I remember like, Right when it, you know, when I tried to get out of that prior relationship, it got really, really bad. I ended up having to get a restraining order, and um, I couldn't go home um, because I was being because I well, I had to get a restraining order. So that says enough. And you know, I'm a family law attorney, so I get restraining orders for work. You know, it's part of my practice. And I had to sit in my own one of my in front of one of my own judges as somebody, and I remember sitting in the courtroom with tears running down my face, um, having to request a restraining order for myself, you know? And that was at like 15 years sober or something. I was maybe 12 or 13 years sober, you know? It was like a really, really painful time for me. Um, and, you know, I didn't go around telling anybody what was happening. I just kept it to myself. And there was another version of things that was going on. Um, but, you know, my husband who ended up who I ended up um, getting close to uh, during that process when that relationship was over and I was trying to get away from that. Um, I remember distinctly having a conversation with him early on and him saying like, you know, nobody should talk to you like that even one time, you know that, right? And, you know, it was interesting to me, like the experience of like, uh, that situation was a really painful, dark chapter for me. And from there, I ended up meeting my, my now husband. And from there, I have my whole new family. I have, you know, my 
beautiful, wonderful stepdaughter who's here and sober. You know, we have a sober house. We have, um, we all share a lifestyle together where we get to go to meetings and speak on panels and do this thing together. And, um, you know, we share, we share so many wonderful things. Um, and it, that has been what my sobriety has been like. You know, every time that there's been a really dark chapter, there's been something amazing that's come out of it. And I, the only reason why I can be comfortable about uh, the chaos when it's happening now is I have experienced that that's how it goes. Uh, about a year ago, I had, an, I had a similar dark time with work and the, um, and you know, that was somewhat of an identity crisis for me because I've always been able to pride myself on what I do for work. Um, and I was challenged with that a little bit. And one of the things that came out of that was that I had to build a stronger relationship with my higher power. And I'm actually really, really grateful for that because now I have a whole different perspective. What I do today to try to stay sober is the same stuff that I did when I was brand new. In fact, I think I probably do more now. You know, uh, I have finally started to do the things that I've always wanted to do, like morning readings and meditation. And, um, you know, I have more consistency and better relationships with people. And I try to consistently work on a relationship with a higher power. Um, the one thing that I that I stress when I talk to people that I work with or when people come and talk to me about Alcoholics Anonymous is that I tell them that when you build a foundation here and you give yourself 100% to this, anything is possible for you. And I believe that 100% because that's been my experience. 